You're listening to Earnestly Speaking, the only weekly podcast that covers friends, foes, and anything that goes. And now, for your badass host, Ernest Owens. And we're back for another episode of Earnestly Speaking with your host, Ernest Owens, myself. <laughs> Ooh, goodness, goodness, goodness. This has been a week and a month. And I'm telling you, 2021, okay, said it is not over until it is over. And it's been it's been a week, y'all. It's been a week, it's been a month. Um, you know, I'm just energized, you know, I'm I'm doing my thing, I'm just pushing through it. I must say, as a journalist, this has probably been one of the busiest weeks um, of the year for me. Like, as far as producing content, both locally and nationally, I've made radio appearances, a television appearance. I was on Amin's show um, on MSNBC through Peacock, um, which is great. I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But it's just been nonstop. And I'm not complaining because... To be young, black, gifted, and talented, to be um, able to work in this industry independently on my own terms is a freedom that I don't take for granted. And, you know, many, 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 many years ago, um, I dreamed of of being in, in, a, in a space like this. Uh, high productivity and promise, um, great vibrations, inspirations, and, and doing meaningful work, which I think is so important. You know, being in a position to say that I'm doing work that is necessary, that's impacting people, that's getting people thinking and talking. That's 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 huge. Um, So I just am just full of great feelings and vibes and excitement. Um, So much to talk about. And I know that you all saw this podcast title and was like, this is about to go down. It is. It is. Um, but before I get into everything, so first off, um, for those who have not listened to my special edition episode, which is only an hour and like seven minutes, um, I did an entire, you know, episode on the breakdown around the Jesse Smollett trial. This episode, I'm not taking up too much time to talk about it in depth because the previous episode, the special edition episode, I encourage you all to listen to that. Um, it warrants a special edition. It was a big damn deal. Everyone's still talking about it. And I just felt like it deserved it. And I hadn't done a special edition in a minute. Well, I gave y'all a bunch in October because I had turned 30 and had got married. But November, you know, which is straight up episodes. And I just did not want to, um, you know, get all that in the air. And, you know, we're only two episodes away from the season finale of the season one finale of Earnestly Speaking. Episode 50. We're two weeks away, y'all. Episode 50 will be the season one finale. And then season two will be coming right back at you in the first week of January. You know, a doll's going to take her break. And then we'll get back in January. But we have two more episodes left to the finale. So, and then I'm going to have a little cute little break. And then I'm going to see you all back in January. So, next week and the week after that. Which is pretty much the rest of December, to be honest. But, um... I will take my cute break and then you all will see me at the at the top of January. Um, so I just want to put that out there. All right. Okay. So getting on with this 
um, ordeal. Um, Smollett episode, special edition, check that out. Uh, a lot of you all said great things about the Scorpion show this week. I gave you all not one, but two episodes because, you know, Kevin McCall of my pals and it's been really great to come back on their show after a year. You know, it's always been a tradition we've been doing since 2016. So for those who do not know about the Scorpion show, which is spelled S-K-O-R-P-I-O-N show, it is on YouTube. And I just want to tell my listeners, folks who've been watching the Scorpion show or don't, you know that um, being on that show and, you know, they have different opinions. Um, it is very different from my views at times. There are things that we, of course, connect with as black queer men. But, of course, certain stances and ideas and opinions are different. And as you all know in the show, I do challenge some of their opinions about certain topics, including uh, specifically the Chris Cuomo um, decision for him to be fired. You know, I support that. Um, I believe victims and uh, specifically believe the victims involved with um, Andrew Cuomo. And so I did take a stance that was very clear about that. And I very much so articulated my position. Um, but, you know, they have different views. And I think the comments um, showcase the nuance and the different opinions um, of what their listeners think they should be doing. But it's all love. And I think that it's important to, you know, be able to have those healthy discussions and, and hopefully people learn from them and do different things. So um, I just want to say that about that, that particular first episode of part one. And then part two was fun as well. And we kind of made predictions about the Jesse Smollett trial and verdict, which, of course, Mikhail and I both uh, presumed that he was most likely going to be found guilty. Um, Kevin assumed that there would be a hung jury. No one... And the conversation, as you noticed, said anything about how this was going to be a completely not guilty verdict. So, um, you know, seeing what we saw, you know, was interesting. But there was a bet Kevin and I made. And I said to him that if Jussie was found guilty, I'm coming back on the show sooner than later. So, yeah, you'll probably see me a little bit more often. Kevin always says that every year. But, you know, we get busy. So hopefully I'll come on the show more. I know so many of you all like to see me on camera in that kind of way. So that was awesome. Um, also this week, I'm in National Magazines. I'm in the Rolling Stone uh, Magazine December issue, as you all know. So many of you all have bought copies, took pictures. Keep doing that, taking pictures of y'all at the store and everything like that, getting in copies. That makes me feel good. And I appreciate all of you all who have continued to show love um in the in the ratings of this podcast so many of you all listen but it's it's you know to help keep the show in the spotlight and buzzing don't just watch don't i mean just don't just don't just listen write a review give it a four star rating um if if you can it doesn't take too long and it does make a difference and it helps spread the word and get people to know more about the show so for those who have done that um especially i get all the notifications when reviews come in thank you so much i really appreciate it and um thanks for just really keeping the spirit up about this show i mean we have passed over 50 episodes in total but uh 48 episodic ish uh episodes or programs and I'm just grateful for it. So thank you so much. Um, as far as um, Rolling Stone go, it came out this week. Um, of course, Adele is the front cover, is the cover story. And my piece on the year of black 
the Black Queer Revolution is what I wrote about, talking about Lil Nas X and Billy Porter and my wedding and all these great moments in the in the community. Um, it's a great piece. So many people loved that it was like an essay and uh, talking about my personal experiences and tying it in with my reflections of how Black um, queerness have been portrayed in the media and how the public has embraced it in over the past 10 years. Um, we start with Frank Ocean and then we kind of move our way through um, and just talking about how people's coming out journeys and how that has played. We talk about Moonlight. I don't want to tell too much of it, but this month is the, this year is the five year anniversary of Moonlight, which is interesting. So I'll talk so much about all of that um, in this piece and I can't wait for y'all to read it. Um, what else, I guess? Oh my goodness. Um, made a TV appearance on um, Amon uh, just recently uh, to discuss the Justice Smollett verdict with another attorney who was on there. Uh, it was a great program. You know, uh, Amon is a respected uh, journalist. He did, he's been a part of the MSNBC family for a while now. He has his great show that comes on both Peacock and MSNBC. My episode is the December 10th episode, which if you go to Peacock, which is free, so all you got to do is go to Peacock, download it. They have a lot of shows and episodes and things and movies. One of the shows that people are watching on Peacock that I've heard about was Real Housewives Vacation or Girls Trip or something like that, which I heard is very juicy because Kenya's on it and Ramona are on it and they're clashing with each other. So that is on there. And they're also having a bunch of holiday movies and also a bunch of other stuff. I know there's like the seasons one through five of The Office is on Peacock right now. Um, I, I never really got to Peacock because I thought it cost money, but actually it was free. So I downloaded that and realized, okay, so now I got Peacock, uh, HBO Max, uh, Disney Plus, uh, Netflix, Hulu. I don't have Paramount Plus. I just don't see the point. Uh, right now, I don't see the point. Um, and I also stream Xfinity. Uh, I have Xfinity uh, Stream, which is basically, I don't have a TV. You know, I've been anti-TV for a long time. I've cut the cord for many, many years, over 10 years. But I have the streaming cable. So I can see all of my shows on my laptop, on my phone, on my um, iPad without any problems. So that was that was big to me. Like when I found I could like do that, because at first I was interested in YouTube TV, but... I just felt like because my, my, I guess for me, I found out that connecting my internet with Xfinity Stream was just a better, more affordable, reasonable plan. Um, and so for people out there who are just still like trying to hold on to their TV, I mean, if you are, or, or don't know the options, if you have Xfinity, I don't know what, um, Verizon Files do, but if you have Xfinity, there is a streaming option for you to do everything on your laptop. You can watch shows on your laptop. You can do DVR. Like I do everything on it. So it's great. And even as a like as a journalist, like when I'm trying to, you know, do news and stuff, it's cool that I'm able to watch live TV or do live tweeting with my laptop while writing drafts. So like award shows where I do live tweeting, it's just great to have on a laptop versus having to go up in the TV or you have to move around. Like, I don't know. I just love it. So, you know. So, yeah, that show was great. Um, I got a lot of talking time to get to talk about, you know, my thoughts on what would be the impact and outcome of this verdict and what it's going to mean for different people. What can I say? 
Um, we'll talk definitely more about the latest updates that's come from the Smollett verdict because there are some things that was said. Um, a juror has spoken to the press um, about that process. And there's just been new details and stuff I want to provide. But before I get to that, one of my best friends and my and my and my and my close close friend squad, um, Lauren, she turned thirty. We just had a really great birthday party for her. Mm. With her family, we was at City Winery, which I've never got to have the full City Winery experience because of the pandemic. But I went and it was gorgeous. We were we was in a space. I believe it was called the Loft. Um, a private space, event space. We, she, her folks, like she took over the whole like like event space that was downstairs, and it was a private party. It was about ooh, 50, 60 of us. We had the whole space, a place to ourselves. We had private catering. It was a very like southern vibe. It was like catfish and grits, shrimp and grits, catfish and grits with it, uh, chicken and waffles, um, baked mac and cheese balls. Uh, this like corn okra sacrifice. It was just good southern food eating at City Winery. They they were the food was really good. And the we had a private bar. It was popping. And she got this cake. Oh my god, that cake was gorgeous. Everyone, people don't know, but like my favorite cake places, um, a lot of them are not like actually in Philly. Um one of my favorite cake places. Um, that I go to outside of Bake uh, Cake Life Bakery, which is in Fishtown. That is like my favorite city bakery. Okay, love them to death, love them down. But there is another one that is my husband's favorite and also Lauren's favorite because she, um, you know, live in the area. It's a place called the Bakery Corner. Um, that is in Ardmore, and they are. They are genius. They they are like a phenomenal bakery. I, I I think it's called the Bakery Corner, but they are um they are very popular. Um and people really love them. People love their uh um is it corner? It's not corner bakery. But hold on, I'm gonna find this place because I'm super. I'm I'm uh super excited about. Uh, popular bakeries near Ardmore. The Bakery House. The Bakery House. That's what it's called. It's called The Bakery House. I know it's such a basic name. <laughs> so it's got The Bakery House and it's in Ardmore and they make incredible cakes. They have the best carrot cake I have ever had in my life. They just have the best carrot cake. I don't know. It's just, I love their carrot cake. The best carrot cake I've had in my life was at The Bakery House in Ardmore. So, Yeah. That's all I can say. I mean, and I like nothing bunk cake. And that's not in like Philly. It's near Philly, I think. It's like what, Lansdowne or something. But that's out there too. I like nothing bunk cake. But it's a very acquired taste. Um, I know people, you know, I don't think anyone hates it. But I know that the people that love it, like me, rave about it. And the people who are not like crazy about cakes like that, they just don't say anything about it. But I love that place. I, I If you're into bunt cakes, if you're into cakes with uh, that red velvet bunt cake they have, that strawberry, I mean, everything is just so, ooh, it's, that's, that's an addiction. Like, I have to stay away from them. And they have many ones that they have. And listen, I, I bet you just can't have one. Okay, I just I'm a fan, so they're one of my favorites. Um, so speaking about other favorable or non-favorable news, however you want to feel about it. So this Omicron update is provided to you by someone who is boosted. So you know I'm boosted. I see a lot of folks that are getting boosted because there's no joke right now. 
it's interesting that the that that the news cycle has been a little quiet on Omicron. Like there was like this member, I don't know, remember there was like this intense moment of I don't want to say fear-mongering, but like a lot of like talk about it, right? Everyone was just talking about it. I'm not saying it cover I mean, it just seems like it just kind of went away. Um some of the coverage or hype. We we, we last week was just like everybody was scared and scratching their butt and washing their hands or hopefully scratching their butt then washing their hands. Uh, but it was a lot going on. Um, and then to this week, it just seemed like we wasn't really hearing much. I mean, we, we heard new updates about COVID in general, which is that they're saying that COVID can get into and, and, and you know damage fat tissue, which is why they said it could be a risk for people who are obese or overweight. A lot of these things are just confirmations of what we already suspected, but the science is confirming certain details. Um, I think long story short, at the end of the day, just get vaccinated, people. I know, I know, I know, I know, but just get it. If, you, if you're still hesitant, I don't know what to say because, you know, cases are going up. Um, You know, at my alma mater, University of Pennsylvania, there was like 130 something cases last week after there were only 120 in all of 2020. So they have shut down in-person events for the rest of the year. And they told staff that they can resume holiday parties by January 5th. I've also heard companies are already telling people that they need to be fully vaccinated by January 31st. You know, one of my friends have a works at a job and um, they're, they're telling their staff they need to be fully vaccinated by January 31st. Like, this is no joke. Um, I know that there are certain... You know, Supreme Court is striking down certain uh, penalties or requirements that Biden might be putting out there. But independent private companies can still do what they want to do. And I just don't understand how at this point people are still trying to act like they have any level of autonomy over this situation outside of being an independent employee or worker or, or, or business owner like myself. Like I work for myself, but I also understand that. If I want to go out and compete in this economy, I'm going to need to be vaccinated. And there's no point to defy science and the fact that this pandemic is continuing to continue in spite of everything else that's going on. It's just no way that you can can deny that. So I'm sitting here and I'm having a lot of moments right now. I'm having a lot of reflections right now. Um... Because this is still impacting communities and people. Um, There was an an article that came out that said that young Latinx um, individuals are being deeply impacted by this. Like they're dying at at rapid rates or at just disproportionate rates. Um, The health racial disparities are real. They continue to be real. And in Philly, we might have a situation where dine in restaurants, right? Eating in restaurants, there's gonna probably be that that van that that proof of vaccination mandate across all of the restaurants in Philadelphia, just like New York and San Francisco. Now I went to a restaurant in New York during PA Society for an event I had, and they weren't playing that. Like, and if you wanted to go in that restaurant, you had to show proof of vaccination. And that might come to Philadelphia, which makes sense because you know, listen, why not at this point? Why not? And also, 
you know, there was progress made. You know, Dr. Ellis Stanford, Philadelphia is one of the cities that was vaccinating the most black people at a higher national average than other cities um, in the country, across the country. There has been progress made in this city. But there also has been setbacks because some people begin to get lax on the on the rules and details and the safety. So every time we get a we 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 step what five steps up, we're, we're falling down ten when whenever a, a you know some some variation of the COVID some some other variant takes place. So it like I just remember this happened with Delta. Like we were making progress. Before Delta, then, you know, we had to get that shit together. Now we was getting that shit calmed down and now here come Omicron and it's like, oh, here we go again. <clears throat> so I just think that it's going to really take us coming together. <sighs> Seriously, just wash your hands. Get vaxxed, y'all. Keep that damn mask on, please, please. I'm starting to see people forget their mask in public. Like... People are starting to forget bringing their masks. And see, because I um, ride Uber um, often, I'm in a position where, uh, you know, I'm in a position because I order Uber that you can't get in an Uber ride without a mask on. So, I, I mean, by default, I just know I have to have the mask on because I'm going to the car. It's no excuse. I don't even walk out the house without a mask on. It's just become second nature to me. People are starting to forget. Like people are really out here like forgetting to wear a mask. So. Yeah, that that's that's where we're at. Where those masks, y'all. So on to the Smollett verdict. It has been only a few days since Jesse Smollett, actor, famous formerly famous actor of Empire, was found guilty on five out of six counts for filing false release reports, um, which basically was involving him, you know, paying for a hoax to be committed on himself. That's what jurors believed. Um, mm. So what's come in light of that is that Jesse's team, they're telling people it's not over. He is going to push through on an appeal. He remains, he claims to be 100% innocent and they're going to keep pushing. And they are, you know, his team, uh, people in support of him because he still have people supporting him even now are using this Instagram account called Coalition for Jesse which Jesse Smollett DM'd me on Instagram earlier this week. Um, and that's how I knew it was connected to him. Jesse and I, as I said in my previous episode, had been in communication, um, which he reached out to me in, in, his, in my DMs. Um, he reached out to me uh, earlier this year, around February of this year, 2021. And communicated with me through Instagram. And then we had a long conversation around three hours um, shortly after where we discussed in full detail uh, what happened um, or, or his take on what happened. And then we continued to talk um, and communicate throughout the year, uh, more so him. And I think, in my opinion, he was keeping tabs on me 
Um, because I think in, in looking in retrospect where we are now, I think that he was trying to sway my coverage and inspection into what was going on with him. That's my opinion. I can't get into details at this moment. But what has been interesting and what I will say here is that he has deleted um, his comments um, to me um, in our uh, Instagram inbox. So everything reads like I was basically having a conversation with myself in the inbox and that he wasn't responding, which is pretty cowardly and stupid because y'all. I have the screenshots. All I'm going to say is where I'm at with it, I am going to respect at this time people's as the privacy of the conversations that were had. But if Mr. Smollett ever thought or assumed or tried to say that there was no communication or no conversations and tried to do that, then I think I would rightfully so have to defend myself and basically disclose the conversations because I'm not going to be lied on. And this guy clearly is a liar. He's lied clearly a lot. (laughs) And I just would hope he doesn't lie. Because there's no reason to. I mean, I'm not going to disclose or share anything outside of what has already been presented and discussed to the public. But all I will say is (laughs) it would be dumb of him to try to act like there was no communication because there are many people who can verify otherwise. I'm just going to leave that part on the table. Leave that alone. I don't want to like I don't I don't have like I said, I don't want this man to go to jail. I don't think jealous the answer. I think something's wrong with him. I think that he needs help. And I'm not even being, you know, condescending by saying that. I really do think he needs help. And those conversations were had as well. I do think there is a lot going on with him. I hope that he will come to a place where he can fess up what he fucking did. And then move the fuck on into healing. Because you can't get to healing without some level of self-accountability. And what is frustrating with his team and what's happening is that they're just—they're telling us everything about everybody else other than trying to actually address what the fuck happened and how Jesse fucked up. And at the end of the day, if we're black men and we're black queer men specifically, we know, at least I knew, because clearly he didn't, that in this country... We have to walk on eggshells and be not twice as hard, but thrice as hard because of all of the different identities and marginalizations we face. And when you're considering the intersectionality of it all and everything that comes with that, you knew. You fucking knew. And maybe there was a disconnect because of your celebrity status, because of the fact that you're you're light-skinned, because of the fact that you are rich and you've come from a a family of money that in many ways you've been shielded from having to actually understand this in all its totality compared to someone like me who didn't come from, you know, that type of background. So maybe that's what makes him think that he is somewhat above approach 
or, you know, that he is someone in a position of um, not being held accountable. And the thing is, is that regardless of whether, like, what makes me upset and disappointed the most about this is that so much of his defense is about everybody else and about innuendo and conspiracy and all of this shit because he doesn't have any actual credibility about what the conversation incident is in question. So he'll talk about that special prosecutor Dan Webb represents Ivanka Trump and whatnot. Okay, that let's you know that that apparently the judge is somebody connected to the judge or the judge's wife donated to Republicans and things. Okay. All of those things can be true. And also the fact that you lie can also be true. And so I see this happen, y'all, where powerful celebrities would waste money and resources trying to act like the entire world's against them to distract and deflect upon the fact that they too was also dirty in this entire system. Because listen, you also... Okay, Mr. You know, Black Lives Matter supporter, I don't trust the police. You was also out here stumping and supporting Kamala Harris. That's what they're saying, right? That she was a Kamala Harris supporter. You was supporting Kamala Harris? Really? But she was so woke, right? Not to say that others who support Kamala Harris are not. I'm just saying that given that Jesse wants to align himself with the Black Lives Matter movement, and be around others who are into cop ab- police ab- you know abolition it doesn't seem like that was what your story was when you did that interview with Robin Roberts which let me just be clear before I get into what the jurors said i encourage or employ those who are interested in learning more about this case and some of y'all might say you know i'm so tired of this fucking case he did it fuck it fair enough fair enough but for those who have a little bit of muster in their stomach to bear I would encourage you to go back and listen and watch that 17-minute interview with Robin Roberts and Jesse Smollett. And I will tell you, I haven't seen that interview in two years in some change. It's been a minute. Two and a half years. I don't I, I only saw it when the interview had first happened. I hadn't seen it since. Knowing what I know now, go back and watch it. And it articulates to me. So many flaws. I'm not going to get into so much of it because I just, I need to marinate and reflect on some of it because I definitely want to write about certain stuff that I have since thought about and and reflected on since I saw that video again. But I would say that it's, it's clear that his, like the case, there's a case to be made for what was stroking his ego. And it, it was not to me wanting to be a victim. It was the idea that he wanted to appear that he kicked somebody's ass and wanted to make himself appear to be a hero. The whole point of this was for him to look like a hero, not a victim. I think when I went back and and looked at that video, my entire thought process had changed based on understanding what he kept articulating. He didn't want the world to pity him. He wanted to appear to be a hero amidst a very dark country. 
right? That was in peril. And I think that that was the, the image she wanted was his bravado. And a lot of things crumbled, right? Like we never got that full footage of the attack in the way that he wanted it to be. And we didn't get it. And in the sense that we got it long after the fact, but we didn't get it during the fact, the fact, right? And so all of those things added in was not what he was hoping for. He was not hoping for that outcome. The outcome was supposed to be he kicked this person's ass. And you know how we know? It's because he made a point to say he fought, he fought the fuck back when he did his live show and his public appearance. The narrative is I, I beat this person's ass. I stood up for myself. That's what he really wanted us to say. He, but but the narrative kept being focused on, oh, he, 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 um, you know, poor him. We're sad. He didn't want that. That was not his intention. And so, when you, when you, you know, you're doing dirty, you're doing dirty. And, and that's what I read out of this personally. I, I read that out of, in my opinion, I read out of it that, that, this that he's right in saying he didn't want the pity party, the victimhood. He wanted something else, in my opinion. And I'm going to take some time to explore that some more. But I have a theory and I have a thesis in my head. But I want to, I, I just, those are the things that stick out to me right now. But I'm going to have to rummage on some thoughts about it. But what I will say is that the juror who spoke to the Chicago Sun-Times or one of the publications locally in Chicago uh, said some things that I thought. So for starters... One of the things that the juror had said to the press is that everybody's saying, how come five out of six of the counts? Why was he only found guilty of five out of six? Why was the other one he was not found guilty? So I have the same question. Jesse's attorney said to the press that the reason why they was going for the appeal was they were saying, well, how is he found innocent on one but guilty on the others? You know, that, that shows you that there's some issues here. He was pointing to it. Actually, according to the juror, they were trying to make the point that they actually really came into the to that conversation with an open mind. It wasn't a split. Like, people that come in the room divided, but it wasn't also a situation that was super contentious. He said that they looked at each of the counts and that what they found was that all of the counts were about false police reports that involved the officers who basically were claiming the false police report. So each of those counts spoke to a false police report uh, involving an officer that debated the charge. The issue is, is that in the complaint and in one of the counts, the sixth count, all five of the other counts were identical, which basically laid out what Jesse said and how that was a lie or inconsistent according to the prosecution. The sixth count added an additional detail in it that said something about he lied about the ski mask or the ski mask wasn't found. That was in fact true that Jesse stayed, well, that wasn't true. Jesse, in fact, stayed consistent in the fact that he said that he saw men with ski mask and that was consistent with his thing. So that wasn't a falseness on Jesse's end. So that detail was what made them say they were doing him Coco a favor, the one the jury described it, that they couldn't, because of that ambiguity of that detail, they did not feel comfortable fi charging, finding him guilty for that count. But that was only one technicality. Had that officer who had wrote that complaint or whatever, had basically said the exact same thing as the other officers who said their five counts that matched with the prosecution, Justin would have been found guilty on all six counts. That detail to me spells that this jury was trying to really 
Like, look into this and really do due diligence and not making this look like they just judged this man and threw away the key. They really did do that part. They said that they felt like the prosecution made a very strong case. They said that Jesse just did not seem to have the sufficient answers that justified what the prosecution was challenging him on. They felt like the prosecution made a really strong case that really made them question Jussie's credibility that made them see what Jussie had to gain from the situation in comparison to the brothers. The jurors said that Jussie did not provide any evidence that helped him. Too much of the conversation in the window was from Jesse, but a lot of it was not provided to him. So one major thing they said, and this is what I said in the previous episode, so I encourage you all, shameless plug, but I mean, again, you're already listening to the podcast. Listen to the other podcast if you haven't heard already, because I really do the whole download on the Jesse Smollett trial in totality. They said they would have liked to hear from Frank Gadsden. Now, remember, Frank Gadsden was the individual who was Jesse's friend, like an uncle to him, as Jesse described him um, in his Good Morning America America interview with uh, Robin Roberts in 2019. Uh, Frank Gadsden was like the creative director who directed, uh, who was going to direct Jesse's music video, the one that he was doing the dieting for and all the crazy stuff for. He was the one who was at the house that night that they were like sharing an apartment or space. And he was the one that saw first saw Jesse when Jesse got home from the incident with the rope and the noose and everything like that. That guy should have been on the trial. He was listed as one of the possible people to come up that to the trial and speak during testimony. He was actually listed as one of the people that could be brought up to testimony. He never did. They never called him to the stand. The defense never called Frank Gatson to the stand. Why? And the jurors said they would have would have loved to hear from him. They wanted to hear him because he could have provided some clarity on some important details. I will tell you that from the sources that I know, they said that Frank came out very beginning strongly supporting Jesse. Okay? He came out swinging. Supporting Jesse, telling Jesse, you know, telling everybody about, you know, you know, correcting people that was criticizing him. You know, this was the thing. Well, there seems to be some confusion because I will tell you all that throughout social media, Frank Gadsden has not been sharing anything of support about Jesse. He has stayed far from Jesse Smollett. I mean, certain posts, certain posts that were being made, um, it, it's not looking good. Like when I look at mutual people who liked, I'm not seeing Frank Gadsden showing support, commenting, saying anything like it's been quiet no post on social nothing like there's been others who have been you know commenting and saying things of support but frank has been quiet and i just think if you were there and you could have been a quote-unquote technically a witness to be called and you were supposed to be justice smollett's you know, uncle and family and close friend and someone who's working on his stuff, why are you quiet? 
You're not saying anything publicly. You're not acknowledging anything. And you was there that night. That to me, I agree with the juror. That is sus. And Lee Daniels, who I said before, who got the FaceTime from Jesse that night, didn't say anything. And Frank Gaston, remember, he was the one who called the police. And according to Jesse, Jesse never wanted the police to be called. So, interesting. That, to me, raised a red flag. But I guess to the jury, that, that lack of evidence that's provided by defense, which could have been a major card. They, they didn't play their cards. They didn't, the defense did not play all of their cards. And it makes one wonder... Were those cards able or willing to be played in the first place? There's a lot of suspicion. And like Sister Aloysius, played by Meryl Streep in doubt, I too have doubts. So, we'll see. I mean, where I stand though, before I move on, just hang it up. Just hang it up. Hang it up, Jesse. Hang it up. Hang it up. Hang it up, please. Just, just... It, like, there are, so, there are so many things I can say, but I will be respectful until I am disrespected. But I would just say, if I was in his shoes, if I was on his team, because, you know, I do consulting, right? I, I um... You know, I have a master's degree from USC's Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism. You know, shout to my, my fellow Trojans, fight on. Um, and communication management. My focus was in crisis communication and, and, and image, you know, branding and self and, and, and image consulting and things of that nature. If I was on his team, strategically speaking, first of all, we would have, if I was on his team and I was consulting him and giving him that type of training advice, we, we would have never done the trial. I would have said, listen, listen, I'm not here to judge you, but I'm telling you right now, no jury in this country, okay, is going to look at this and, and think you're, you're going you're, you're to get off scot-free. It ain't happening, homie. If I was you, I would, I would just go ahead and get my story together. Um, and that story is called the truth. Get your truth together. Get your facts together. Tell your truth and tell your full truth. The full truth. Because what's missing with Jesse right now is the full truth. And if, if you're if, and if you're innocent, which is very much, very much so, very impossible, you are acting like Ben Affleck right now and Gone Girl. Like I said in my last episode, you are acting like Ben Affleck and Gone Girl. You're literally making yourself look like you did something that you claim you didn't do. Well, if that's not what you did, then how the fuck do you look like that? And if there is something that people don't know, why won't you spill it? That the, the defense wants to claim there are witnesses they couldn't bring up to testify. But they said the judge wouldn't allow those, those witnesses. But the clear point is, is that some of those witnesses, we don't even know if any of those witnesses, quote unquote, were any much credible or people that were credible to even show up and support. First of all, is Frank Gaston one of those people? I don't think so. It don't seem like Frank Gaston was allowed to. Because Frank Gaston was up to talk. that He could have talked. He didn't. That wasn't somebody that was not allowed to. He was literally 
a direct witness to some of the details that the prosecution was trying to shoot down. Let's just keep it 100. They came in there with a body camera. The cops came to Jesse's house with a body camera footage. You saw Frank in there. Frank called. Frank could have been there. Frank didn't want to be there, in my opinion. And Frank didn't want to testify. And the fact that Frank has completely recused himself from anything that's going on with Jesse speaks volumes. Actually, you know what I'm going to do? I want to see something real quick. Because I'm going to see something. I want to see something real quick. Because, again, I feel like this is an important point, And I think that this needs to be clear. So I'm going to look at something real quick. Well, that's confirmed. I just got something confirmed. Yep, I'm looking now. It doesn't appear that, at least to me, that Frank Gaston and him are even following each other on Instagram. They might, but it, seem, it doesn't seem like they are from what I'm seeing. It doesn't, it doesn't appear that Frank Gaston is following him. Interesting. Yep, I'm looking at it does not appear. Yeah, it does not appear that Frank Gaston is following um Jesse. I'm gonna double check because I want to confirm. Cause I'm looking at our mutual followers. Well, Don Lemon still follows him. So it looks like yeah, I think okay, so Frank and him are still following each other. Or I think Jesse's still following Frank. Um it's interesting because I'm wondering, Frank, does Frank follow me? These people are followed. Oh, interesting. Followed by you. So I don't know if he's following Frank or Frank is following him because it's interesting. But there is somebody in that base that's following. The only issue is, that's interesting to me, is that there hasn't been anything said on the timelines. So it's interesting. Interesting. That's all I would say. I mean... If there is an appeal, will he speak at the appeal? Again, I have doubts. So. Mm. Let's get into this case. So Sheriff Rochelle Bilal, as you all know, is the sheriff of Philadelphia. She's the first woman who was the sheriff for, for the city. First woman ever be elected as sheriff of Philadelphia. There has been, and her, her predecessors have had lots of corruption um, before her. Um, sheriff Jill Williams was never convicted of um, sexual assault, but had faced many sexual harassment allegations. And there were many settlements that was done when he was a state rep and also when he was in the sheriff's office that costed hundreds of thousands of dollars in total. Um, and it's been a lot to see and to witness. And it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. But that's happening right now. Um, well, 
previously happened. That's how he lost. He ran for re-election against Sheriff Rochelle Bilal in 2019. And we have been waiting ever since to see what those, you know, see what was going to come of her office because she, her campaign was basically on this, um, how do I describe it? Scandal after scandal. Uh, dismiss scandal out of, out of scandal. We, we, you know, we have to, you know, there's going to be a new day in the sheriff's office. All of this energy that was meant to really make people feel optimistic. Now, I did not vote for her. I voted for Malika Rahman, who was the other black woman who was in that three uh, candidate race. Bilal, Rahman, and then, um, of course, Jewel. Jewel lost and, you know, and Rahman lost and Bilal won. And so her background was that she was a longtime cop that spoke on police reform and addressing racism and discrimination in the office. She aligned herself with other ex-cops that spoke out around alleged corruption in the Philadelphia Police Department. I mean, she was the, you know, the president of the Guardians of Philadelphia, which is like the black police, you know, you know, group. Um, advocacy group. And and she just really, you know, put herself in this position where she was really something that was different, you know, this reformer. Now she had some hiccups and some ethics and things like that, that kind of came out, but that wasn't enough to sway the majority of voters to vote in her favor for her to be elected sheriff. I mean, she just has a lot of connections and power throughout Philadelphia. She's on the board of the Philadelphia NAACP. Um, and, and that's interesting within his own right because of the, well, the president of that organization is also the publisher of a black newspaper in Philadelphia. And that black newspaper gets a lot of its funding and support from the sheriff's office. So there just seems to be a lot of intertangled webs of relationships and connections that have long happened before Bilal was sheriff. Um, and, and, and there's always been a relationship with the sheriff's office uh, department and these particular um, black owned publications. Um, because a lot of them get their money from sheriff sales, which those ads go into the paper, and those relationships have been there for years. So it's just some 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 context to get here. The moment Rochelle Bilal got in office, like within the first like ninety days, first one hundred days of of her uh, tenure, she was automatically getting um, accused of having a slush fund in the sheriff's office, of being retaliatory and of corruption by former employees, one of which named Brett Mandel, who was her CFO, came in there looking at the money, looking at everything that was going on. was like, look, this, this is, you got to change this. You know, but Rochelle Bilal came in giving out some big six-figure contracts to some people that was previously connected to her campaign, including her uh, campaign manager, Teresa Lundy, um, <laughs> that is now her spokesperson who has a big six-figure contract with her office and it's just looking like a lot of alleged quid pro quo going on with how those sheriff contracts have been given out well brett mandel was calling that out and he got sent out immediately like quickly he got fired and was being sent out of that office uh two other uh former staffers one of which was a black woman who also worked closely with rochelle and was a supporter during her campaign they are now filing two, there are two federal lawsuits going against Rochelle. Now, let me just say this, that case against Brett, Brett did file a lawsuit with the Municipal Common Pleas Court and um, they, the settlement in total cost the city $500,000.
Brett got a nice hefty sum that was over two hundred some thousand dollars. His attorney got another hundred some thousand dollars, and then a lawyer uh, other fees were shot to pay. Um, but there was the, they had to pay the city had to pay around fifty eight some thousand dollars something like that for Bilal's attorney. Like basically, this entire endeavor cost over five hundred thousand dollars. So that's city money, y'all. This is the poorest major city in America, and you already came in there. With a settlement situation, which of course the, the, he, the, he had the that the divorce part of the settlement was that the divorce the city of any wrongdoing, which probably cost them more money because the city can't afford more and more litigation. But that's an interesting detail. But it was supposed to divorce them of any liabilities further after that settlement. Interesting. But Brett continues to speak out against some of the issues that are happening. Um, but I said I to say that the totality of Rochelle Bilal's cost to the city in that settlement was more than what the city had to pay for in regards to the sexual harassment settlement involving Sheriff Joe Bilal and the one that he previously had when he was a state rep combined. Just an observation. There are two other additional lawsuits that are coming from two former employees as well, two women who are also coming after Rochelle Bilal, claiming that they got fired based on you know speaking out because they didn't want to hire certain people, background checks they wanted to put in place, that basically she was going in there, running this place like it was her own. Not respecting the people's money, not respecting the integrity of the, of the, of the public. Um, it's it's disappointing and disgusting because she ran on a campaign around change and she's basically doing the same shit, if not worse. So in an op-ed that I wrote for Philly Mag, which her spokesperson tried to make this little shot and say, writers, not journalists, are hilarious. But, you know, it's she's pretty hilarious and how she's come up throughout her career and some of the things that I know to be fact that involves her and how she's dealt with you know, uh, married men in this city. Um, we're not going to do that. I'm a journalist and you are a spokeswoman for the sheriff. And we're going to address each other's titles respectfully and we're going to leave it at that. Because if we start trying to disrespect titles and positions and what people do, I promise you that that is not a good look. It's not a good look. It's not a good look. I, I just not a good look. That's all I promise you. I promise you that that's not a good look because it's not professional. And that's what I'll say. It's not a good look. So moving along, <laughs> I wrote an op-ed as a journalist for Philadelphia Magazine that her office um, should be abolished. And I'm referring to Sheriff Jewel or Sheriff Floridian slip. Sheriff Rochelle Bilal's office should be abolished and she should resign. She should resign first, but the office should be abolished. So let me get there. I think that with all of the controversy surrounding Bilal, the fact that all of those things happen. But see, I almost buried the latest scandal. Let me go back because I was in my bag. Earlier this month, the Philadelphia Inquirer reported 
that she hired a, a former officer named Michael Page, a disgraced former cop. She hired as her deputy sheriff in her office with a salary of $100,000 a year. If you remember hearing a man about a man named Michael Page, many years ago, this cop was charged for sexual um, assault involving a younger black man who was at Fairmont Park who basically said that um, he was stopped by him, by this officer, and basically, I guess, had marijuana on him or drugs to the point that the officer basically um, coerced him and forced him into performing oral sex, to which the individual did. And when that man left, he spit into a styrofoam cup, reported to the DA, reported to the police, did all... did his thing. They did an investigation that DNA matched and he was charged for it. Uh, Page was. Well, when it happened later on, there was back and forth. He was supposed to get his job back. FOP got in the mix of it. It was a lot of other people influencing how this went down. And that was reported by the Inquirer. But what came of it was that the jury, when the jury went back and reviewed it, right, that the evidence. They said basically that they believed that this man um, had violated him, had violated the victim, to which there was a settlement or a payment that he was forced to pay $165,000 to the victim. Page was, not the police department, Page. Page is yet to pay, according to the victim's lawyer. And all of that is happening, right, has happened. And Rochelle Bilal, Miss Police Reform, Miss we're not going to have scandal after scandal, um, hires this man. Because I guess Philadelphia doesn't have enough people that want a job right now. There was no one else you could have hired, but that's the person you're going to hire. The man who was also identified by the Inquirer many years ago about police records being public and dirty backgrounds of cops. Like, this is not the kind of person you should want to have in your office. Especially given that you yourself, as a former officer of many years, spoke about how that type of corruption wasn't okay, and then you hire someone with that background. Disgusting, despicable. As of right now, we do not know if she has fired this person. She has not spoken much to the press about any of this, except for her spokesperson, okay, who told them and confirmed that he was employed by the sheriff's office. But that's all we know. So... For those reasons, that's what inspired me to write my op-ed that called for Bilal to resign and also for that office to be abolished. Let me say this. It is not that extreme for me to request or say the sheriff's office needs to be abolished. For starters, the office pretty much um, provides protection and security for uh, courtrooms and courthouses. I'm sorry, could Ally Barden do that? Could we get someone else to do that? I mean, it does not have to be done in this type of office. It does not need to require an elected head. Like, what the fuck? And then also, they deal with um, foreclosures and things of that nature. Again, that can be folded. How do I know? Because former Mayor Michael Nutter in 2008 proposed that all of the row houses, which at that time was, it was office of the clerk, it was a longer logo title than that. The city commissioner's office that deals with elections and voting, the sheriff's office, and then the register of wills office. Those are the row offices. It was basically said 
Um, the mayor thought that that time, Mayor Nutter thought that those should all be folded into other city agencies and that that was a way, it was a waste of money, basically. He was right. I agree. None of those row houses, uh, row offices, Floydian Slip, should exist. They don't need to. They don't need to have elected, like, we're electing these people. Like, and then we're not electing people that are like, I mean, for the most part, there are some people in those row offices that are credible, but a lot of them are not. And they basically are, are getting ridiculous salaries and, and doing work that could be done elsewhere more efficiently. So a report came out, a re, a, an actual research report that came out in 2009 confirmed and even stated that if those role offices were to be folded into other city agencies, aka we could appoint a sheriff. We could. We don't have to do election. We don't have to do all that. If we did that, we would save thirteen to five million dollars in Philadelphia. Now, again, some of you all might say, "Oh, thirteen to fifteen million is that a lot of money?" Well, let me tell you something. When you're the poorest major city in the United States of America, every fucking penny counts. I just think it's interesting how some people would like to talk about how much is enough or little. I'm sorry, we broke. This city is broke, and if it wasn't for Biden's, you know making it rain on Philadelphia, coming through with that money um, after the pandemic, we would have been under the ground. But we're still broke. And the, the fact that there are still parks in this city and recreation centers and areas around here that are still not being treated for, provided for, or cared for, our gun violence situation is out of control. We don't have enough resources. I'm sorry, all of this extra money could be going to, to address those issues effectively. They could be going to really helping those in need. Just saying. We could be fixing poverty right now. We could be fixing hunger right now. There's a lot of things we could be doing right now. So I just, I'm, a, I'm very, very um, cynical when I hear, well, not cynical. I'm pissed off. I get pissed off when I hear people question uh, ways that we can save money in the city, especially when the city is broke. And no one else is coming up with ideas. And every time people say there's no way we can find money in government, um, I'm always every week, like, I feel like I'm finding ways to show up that budget that would be effective. Not only did this report, which is also in my article, my op-ed, if you go to Philly Mag, put my name in, look at recent articles I've written. This is my most recent column to date for them. I do, I do hyperlink the report and share the, the specific information about the agency. But in that piece, and in general, they not only said that this would save us this kind of amount of money, but they also said that there would be more transparency and efficiency if we folded them into city agents, into other city agencies. So what that means is right now it costs way too much money. We're wasting money and we're not getting transparency or any level of efficiency by having the, these role offices be the way they are currently. So that's, a, that's something there. So let me tell you what happened since. Um, a few years ago, uh, well, actually, no, during Mayor Nutter's tenure as mayor, he was able to cut out the office of the clerk, and it was a clerk of something, something, long ass title. But he was able to abolish one of the role offices. Because with that particular office, he did not have to have city council um, vote on it and bring it up or change the city charter. So let me be clear. The city charter is like our city's constitution. In order to change something in the city charter, 
it must be voted on by city council to allow voters to make the decision. And then it gets on the ballot and then we vote on it and then it becomes a part of the charter and becomes like a land, it becomes a land, the land, of, the law of the land. So, for example, whenever you see those ballot questions that we have, y'all, they're really important because that also not only changes the charter at times, but it also instructs city council to enforce something. So when we talk about cannabis or we talk about legalization of cannabis or we're talking about all of these different laws or, for example, the question of should we have an office of LGBT affairs? That was many years ago, something that we voted on. And, and, the, and the majority of Philadelphians voted yes, it was vo vo voters voted yes. It became a permanent office. And that meant that our taxpayers' dollars went to supporting an office of LGBT affairs where we have an executive director and yada, yada, yada. So that's how it works. What would need to happen now, and this is my pro modest proposal, is that I would like to see, um, I would like to see, uh, city council, right, entertain the notion of eliminating the sheriff's office. I would like to see all of them go, but I know that politics right now will not work in favor of everybody. But what I would say is that in the event that Rochelle Bilal gets in some type of, you know, if there's deeper trouble here, more settlements, um, an indictment, you know, any of the possibility of those things. I don't, I don't, I don't, listen, let me be clear. This is all speculative. I am not reporting that there is any probe or any of that nature. I don't know anything about that. All I know is there are current federal um, um, lawsuits. I know that there was a major costly settlement. What I'm saying is, is that in the event that any of these things might occur, if there is more settlements that might cost the taxpayers money with these two employees, if there is other you know, situations where the, that office gets investigated and there's indictments and convictions and things of that nature that might occur. In any of those circumstances, I was going to say that um, it's important for us to consider abolishing the sheriff's office. That's all. That's all. So, speaking of law enforcement, D.A. Larry Krasner has been in the news um, this week for several reasons, actually. But we'll start with the first part. Um, there's been a lot of backlash at Krasner's statements on the gun violence crisis in Philadelphia. Um, he's since backtracked um, his statements. But I want to read directly what happened here and um, some of the stuff that People have been, you know, accusing him of, um, of, well, not accusing, but but noting in his statement. And this is what it is. So at a news conference, now this news conference on Monday, he pushed back on reporters who had questioned him about the city, you know, dealing with gun violence. And he, you know said that there's an unusual phenomenon that's occurring in Philadelphia as well as other big cities. So basically his statement was that even as gun violence and homicides have reached record heights, crimes without firearms have been flat or fell or falling. Someone said that his, you know, that was reported that those statistics were inaccurate, but the spirit of his remarks and his academic tone were swiftly derided as minimizing the city's unprecedented spike in killings and shootings. Right now, we have over 
525 homicides in Philadelphia this year. It's historic, and we still have a couple of weeks remaining. Um, it, it, it just really seemed tone deaf um, to people when he said, I'm going to read it out, quote, he said, we don't have a crisis of lawlessness. We don't have a crisis of crime. We don't have a crisis of violence. Even though the murder rate in Philadelphia has soared to record levels. It, 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 it's, it's a lot. And when I first heard him say this, I said, well, of course he thinks this. Of course he thinks this. Only a DA who's already been accused of not addressing victims' issues or concerns would hold those types of views. I think that the issue with Krasner is that there's been a lot of people, and I don't want to address this in the room or in the podcast, that have been saying, and I've seen this on Twitter and social media, that, oh, you know, why is everyone coming at Krasner? They should be coming at the police department. Well, you know, first of all, I come at everybody's department. So I'm not going to take that personal. And to be clear, it wasn't addressed to me. But I want to say that I think some people need to really be honest about how the criminal justice system works or how the general, the, 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 the process works overall. I, I'm, I'm flustered with this. For starters, police make arrests. And I mean, don't get me started on how they do, because, you know, honestly, fuck all these departments. But I'm just saying for the sake of clarity on what things are supposed to be versus what they are, the police are supposed to go out, make arrests. They then send the assailants to jail. The prosecution, the prosecutor's office or the DA's office, right? District attorney's office. Then, you know, proceed with charges based off of the evidence by police. They will then, you know, in some cases, prosecute these individuals, put up bail and deal with those type of things. And how the DA's, the DA's office handles those cases individually will determine the outcome of what happens to those criminals. So if they are giving them a tough sentencing or whatever the case is, those types of things take place within the DA's office. That's outside of the police's purview at that point. Police make the arrests. DA handles the rest to a certain extent. And other, you know, public defenders and other folks. But the DA's office is supposed to prosecute to the furthest extent of the law. That is typically the rationale, the rhetoric around the DA's office. Which is why, personally, I don't know why we try to act like the DA's office, like the police department, are somehow, you know, different. And that you can create a radical reform movement out of a DA. I just, uh, a little cynical about that. Because how I understand crime and law and order, the DA ain't your friend either. But whatever. What do I know? What do I know? Certain people think otherwise. Well, the critique is, and this is me telling you all what the critique is, is that once... Arrests are made by known gun assailants and gun violence people and folks that shoot up communities, whatever, that these individuals, once they get to the DA side, the DA is giving lighter sentences. The DA isn't necessarily, you know, being tough on crime. Again, rhetoric that's used by certain people. But again, that is the critique. So for those who say that why they're not addressing the police department, 
there is no way that the police department is completely responsible with addressing the gun violence issue without the aftermath effect of what the DA's office is. According to the critics of Krasner, they're saying that when police do make these arrests, which let's be very clear, the research shows, okay, that the police department are not making enough arrests that matches the level of it. So in other words, there are more gun violent, dangerous folks out here with guns shooting up places that are not being arrested, maybe because the police are spending too much time stopping and frisking innocent black people. But again, just trying to put this out here. Because of the fact that the police is, you know, making these arrests, they're not making as many as they should involving criminals, according to the data, right? If we're going to entertain a police state, ugh. If we're gonna if we're, listen, it's what it is. I can't I can't unimagine it until that gets done. I'm just stating the facts. Police department arrest people. They're not making as many arrests as they should in correlation to the amount of homicides we have. But for the arrests that they do make, there are concerns from people that or, or from critics or opponents of Krasner that once it becomes in DA's hands, people are not seeing the justice. The victims, the families are not seeing the justice. And when Krasner makes remarks like this, when his office seems to already have a reputation of not giving a fuck about handling these types of criminals, this statement only adds insult to injury. It only puts salt on a wound and only creates more confusion. And so if you're a Krasner supporter, there's no way that you can look at that statement and go, what the fuck? And go, yeah, that's what's up. There's no fucking way. I don't know any Krasner supporter that could be like, yo, Krasner, that was cool. Somebody had to pull him aside and chin check him and say to him, listen, there's ways to make points and you get it too cocky. But, but Krasner's always been arrogant. Krasner's always been arrogant. Let me just say that. As someone who's covered this, his races and have followed his, his entire rise in Philadelphia, he's always been arrogant. And so I'm not too surprised by this statement. However, on Thursday, he said he was quote unquote inarticulate and said that he offended people by saying earlier this week that the city faced no crime crisis. Um, it was nearly an apology um, and clearly was an unusual about face. Okay. About face meaning it was a complete 180. Um, from a district attorney who basically normally, you know, hits controversy and dismiss the girls, okay? Or dismiss the people, right? But, um, yeah, it's it's very rare that he defends himself. He gets criticism from everybody. And he even gets stuff from, you know, other Democrats like Krasner. And in many ways, you know, this is, he's, he's always going bluntly on offense against politicians who have differed with him. But in this situation... I think he he recognized that this wasn't a good look. Former Mayor Michael Nutter wrote an op-ed that dragged him to filth an inquirer, called his remarks some of the most some of the worst, most ignorant, and most insulting comments I've ever heard spoken by an elected official. And others really just said that he was really out of whack. You know, of course. Kenny and, you know, and, and Outlaw were asked to speak on it, but they didn't want to get into it. Uh, they, did, they, they declined to talk about or call him out 
for, for whatever was going on. They didn't want to talk about it. Of course, Mayor Kenny Daniel Outlaw didn't want to talk about it. Um, but, you know. It, it, what can I say? What can I say? I think that there's a lot of issues um, that he's going to have to take time to think about. But I will tell people that at the end of the day, you know, y'all favorite big white hope. You know what I'm saying? His great white hope. He was a great white hope. And, and, and Kenny was a great white hope too, right? They're failing y'all. Like de Blasio did in New York. Because I got to throw a New York shot. As if this couldn't be a worse day for... Uh, worst week, I'm sorry, for Krasner. Um, you all remember I wrote extensively about his entangled. I've been using that word like entangled because there's been a lot of entanglements in 2021. I thought 2020 had entanglements. Nah, 2021 have entanglements for sure. Maybe that's the, well, that's not the word of the year. I think vaccine is. Um, but let's talk about entanglements and things. Um, for the Daily Beast, I wrote in May of 2021, earlier this year in the spring, a piece right after Krasner's election talking about um, how his relationship with Sean King's PAC, the Real Justice PAC, and Brandon Evans and all those people. Remember that piece? Remember that conversation? Remember that podcast episode? And I was just talking about like how everyone was getting paid through the PAC. Like, okay, so, you know, Brandon Evans was the political director for Sean, Sean, Sean King's Real Justice PAC, but he was also the campaign manager for Larry Krasner's campaign. And I was like, yo, how was that working? Does that make any sense? That's kind of weird. And also how he was also the political director for another pack that Sean King has, this one with Esley Merritt on it called the Greenfield or whatever, uh, Greenwood or whatever project or whatever. Again, another pack. And I just said there was too much money moving around. There's a woman named Becky Bond who was the co-founder of the Real Justice Pack with Sean King, but she also... Um, was getting paid, her her company was getting paid consulting from um, Krasner fundraising money that went through the pack that was paying for her. It was weird paying consulting fees. All this was apparently legal. and But the issue was there was a lack of transparency to the public about the relationship between the pack and the staff and everything like that. So for the second time in a row, of elections involving Krasner and Sean King's pack, that pack was fined again for doing similar shit, except even even more graver this time. They got fined. Uh, Real Justice Pack got fined thirty thousand dollars. Krasner's campaign got fined ten thousand. Now this is nickels and pennies for these guys, but it's the fact that it's the ethics for me. It's the ethics for me. So I have a piece coming out for the Daily Beast that's going to unpack this and talk about this again because. I think it's important for me to say, I told you so, Philadelphia. I told the whole country. I said, this relationship is, is this is weird. And this also stemmed from his opponent, um, Carlos Vega, who did a lawsuit against um, Krasner. We're still waiting to see what the outcome of that election is going to be. He sues Krasner. He sues uh, Sean King over defamation and other issues. But in that um, police, I mean, not police report, but in that lawsuit, he talks about all of the nefarious alleged ways that the Real Justice Pack and Krasner's campaign had. There's a lot of allegations made, 
But from reading that report, I began to read how weird and entangled. I mean, this is deep. You can Google up um, Ernest Owens, Sean King, Larry Krasner, The Daily Beast, and Google, and the article will come up. Both of them will come up. The most recent one will be coming out very soon. But in this, in this article, I'm reading this, and I'm thinking to myself, uh, and when I was reading that lawsuit, I was like, these are facts, right? Like, the details of the relationship. This is sus. And I was right. What the Philadelphia Board of Ethics said in finding them was that basically the campaigns, you know, did not um, disclose. They made misstatements and inaccuracies throughout their campaign finance report and that they misled the public on the relationship between the PAC and the campaign. So, for example, what we did not know, right, is that although Brandon Evans was walking around Philadelphia and in the press as the campaign manager for Krasner, Krasner did not articulate that in those finance documents reports, Evans' services were being paid for as consulting expenses through the Real Justice Pact. And why that is problematic is because he was the political director of said PAC. And said PAC, through the money that was coming from Krasner from the campaign, that, that was the there was an exchange and trade-off of basically PAC staff working on Krasner's campaign. That shit was dirty. And that disclosure was not made clear in those financial reports. So they got fined again. And here's the thing. They in my opinion, they fucking knew. They knew what they were doing. You know why? Because they had similar complaints and issues back in 2017 when Krasner was fined the first time with Sean King's Real Justice Pack. You're a lawyer. You're an attorney. You're a DA. Why are your ethics so fucking shoddy when it comes to finance reports, campaign finance reports? You're a DA. What are you doing? Clearly not thinking the city has a, a gun violence crisis. I hope he can admit that the city has a, a, a political campaign crisis because politics in this city is dirty. It's just interesting what, what, what Krasner can, can be caught up in and what he can't be caught up in. It, it, keep an eye out on him. I think we should keep an eye on any elected official, to be honest. But, but Krasner, some of y'all get a little lax with Krasner because your politics align with his, his progressive politics. Listen, I'm a progressive Okay, and I'm black. I'm a real progressive. Okay? A lot of times, you know, there's a lot of white people that take up space in these political conversations trying to, you know, judge black people on what they are and what they aren't and, and trying to, to speak and, and overstep. There was this hashtag on Twitter about called white people overstepping. And these are one of those moments where they try to act like they're the solution to the problem that, that their lineage had created. Sometimes it's okay to just sit back and shut up and just do better as a person and not try to, you know, do what oppression Olympics or try to measure yourself up against other black people who may not be as privileged to say certain things the way you do without having threatened and, and facing persecution. Think about that. But as I get on to progressives, I've been talking about the governor's race, the Senate race. I haven't talked much about the governor's race, but I talked a lot about the PA Senate race in Pennsylvania. There is finally, y'all, and I don't know if it's public yet, but it's coming soon. But I'm I'm talking about it on my podcast. From what I gauge and what I've heard and what I gather, okay, and, and I think we know, 
Brian Sims, who is the state rep in Philadelphia, he's one of the first openly gay state reps in Pennsylvania history, who's been in office for a, for a couple of years, now, about six years or eight years now, probably. He's been around for a minute. Um, he is running for lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania. Now, I don't have to get into my history of Brian Sims. Do not like the guy. The guy do not like me. Um, um, I guess one of his major fuck-ups, among many fuck-ups, is that when I was covering gay racism five years ago and racism in his district involving LGBTQ people, this pathetic-ass elected official literally said nothing when this was happening on his, in his, on his grounds. He spoke up months, months, and many months later after the dust had been settled, after the Philadelphia Commission on Human Relations stepped in, after there were resignations, after others who were involved did. And he continued to get support from those bars that were, that were alleged as being, that was being accused of racially discriminating black and brown people. And in fact, that PCHR report that was, um, that was produced in January of 2017 confirmed that there were acts of racial discrimination and issues and policies that happened at those bars. And it was Derek Green, council member Derek Green, who I, I do like a lot of things, have done great work, was the one who introduced the bill and got it unanimously passed by city council that would put tougher sanctions on commercial properties such as gayborhood bars and others that discriminate people on the basis of race, sexual orientation, and other um, identities. Um, the fair practice ordinance is where he put those tougher sanctions in, where at that time, before Derek Green stepped up, they were just getting little fines and slapping the risk. Derek Green allowed the bill to allow the power to go to the city to, in some cases, remove the commercial activity license, remove the license for them to be able to, um, you know, do their business in the city, doing the things that they're doing. So that was powerful. Brian Sims had nothing to do with any of that. Brian Sims stayed silent. Brian Sims was having a lot of relationships with those properties and those owners and people who were being accused of racism. And he said nothing during that time. He stayed completely out of it. He was a coward. And that man has done a lot of cowardly things, but he's definitely a showboat. He's somebody who reminds me of Malcolm Kenyatta. The apple don't fall too far from the scene. What is wrong with our gay elected officials? I wonder. Um, but they just chase national headlines and attention. A lot of that national attention is dumped down for him because of the fact that, you know, Malcolm Kenyatta has, you know, upped him on the on the thirst for attention. Right. So Brian Sims is playing second fiddle to Malcolm Kenyatta. But to be very clear, Brian is now trying to run for lieutenant governor, um, which now he's facing a likely challenger in this man named Austin Davis, who is a state rep um, that is doing a damn thing. Um, he's based in Pittsburgh. Um, I've met him. I've had a conversation with him. Not about the election, just having conversations, um, you know, about politics and about his politics and its understanding. And he's he's been in Pittsburgh. He's a lifelong resident of Mon Valley. You know, he's you know, he has a great story. Um, he's a state representative of the 35th legislative district. And from what I'm hearing is that he's going to be the likely challenger to Brian Sims um, in this race. If that is the case, listen, you got my vote. You know what I'm saying? Um, you got my vote. You got my vote. <laughs> Just go keep it 100. You got my vote.
because I don't, I, I don't, yeah, this is, this, I, I, I don't even need to hear anything else. I don't need to hear anything else because I know enough about his opponent to never consider his opponent for any elected seat ever in my life. And this brother seems to be pretty decent. So the brother's got my vote. And I hope he has yours because more will come in this election. But I just want to tell you, for those who are queer that are ne that do not live in Philadelphia, but are groupies for Brian Sims, I want you to know that a lot of Philadelphians, gay, straight, in between, do not care for this guy. And while there are bigots in Pennsylvania, I would never deny that that may not like him for his sexual orientation. The same way there are bigots out here who don't like me for my sexual orientation. There are people who do not like him for credible, legitimate reasons. And I'm one of those people. As a black gay man, that man is not intersectional. That man is not for us across the board. That's my opinion. And I'm sticking with it. All right. So let me just get this out the way. I do not, there are moments, there are moments on Twitter where I say to myself, there's nothing like this app. This is why this is my favorite app. I know Jack Dorsey has resigned. He's stepping, he stepped down as Twitter CEO. They got a new CEO. How you doing? But this app, my God. So this, over the weekend, there is, there was a woman named Classically Abby. Now, let me tell you about Classically Abby because, see, all this got to be in full context. Classically Abby is, I'm not going to reveal one aspect until I get to the other piece. Classically Abby, because everybody's going to be asking how all this happened. Classically Abby is this conservative woman. We'll just start there. Who posted on her Twitter account to her thousands of followers. There's a popular YouTube page. Basically making a remark comparing Madonna at 63 who, as y'all know, Madonna has been acting buck wild on Instagram, but that's her prerogative. I mean, she got a titty out. Instagram told her she can't have that picture up. They have to make a cover of her boob. She has her butt out. People questioning that there might be some surgery there. Her face is looking a little tighter. Whatever the case is, Madonna's body, bitch, she's Madonna. That's what she wants you to know. But Madonna, you know, she's always been a wild child. And Madonna has been definitely acting out. Miss Madam X, Maj has been cutting up on Instagram, Okay. She wants y'all to know she is still in this bitch and she is doing it. So, you know, she's hypersexual, always lacing spandex and all the fishnet stockings and all that. So she had a picture of Madonna with the boob, the infamous boob photo up against Nancy Reagan out here um, doing her thing, which Nancy Reagan is no longer alive, but it was a picture of Nancy Reagan at 64. So she was comparing them and saying that... Um, that Madonna was slutty or trashy and that um, Nancy Reagan was classy. And she kind of put this out there. Well, because the internet and because Twitter never forgets, they wanted to remind you that Nancy, okay, Nancy Reagan, all right, was the throat goat back in her day. Now, for those who don't understand what throat goat means, goat is in reference to greatest of all time. G-O-A-T, all caps, greatest of all time. Throat is in reference to oral sex. Just putting it out there. This is Listen, when you listen to my podcast, my podcast say this is explicit content. This is for adults, mature audiences only. Viewer discretion, listener discretion is advised. So not to get into fellatio uh, or get to the you know tip of it all, <laughs> no pun intended, 
Um, back in her days when Nancy Reagan reportedly, because let me be clear, this is not internet rumors. There was books about Hollywood relationships and sex and scandals and controversies. This was reported in a book. This was back in the days because remember Reagan was a Hollywood actor. Um, yeah, as y'all know, Reagan was a, was a Hollywood actor. So was Nancy. They both met. Okay. Now they said that pretty much, um, you know, there was an unauthorized biography that back in the day when she was at MGM Studios, uh, people are claiming that she was a super head of her time. This is in reference to Corinne Stephens, who was the video vixen back in the early days. Listen to read a book called Confession, Confessions of a Video Vixen. It was a New York Times bestseller. Corinne Stephens talked about how was a former video model, black woman who talked about her many sexual escapades with famous rappers. It was a controversial book back in the day. But now, because we're done with slut shaming women and we should stop that in the industry, she's now looked at as a pioneering voice around the video vixen culture. Now, back to Nancy and her head game, allegedly. Uh, the streets are finding out in an unauthorized biography that Nancy was a superhead of her time. In this book, it says, I heard serious rumors that Nancy Reagan did indeed give the best blowjobs in Hollywood years ago when skimming through Kitty Kelly's unauthorized biography of Nancy, Bourne, and Francis Robbins. Nancy, the book alleged, was, quote, was renowned in Hollywood for performing oral sex. Furthermore, she was reportedly known to perform said oral sex, quote, not only in the evening, but in offices. That was one of the reasons that she was very popular on the MGM lot. Quote, it must have made her very popular with Ronnie, in reference to Ronald Reagan, as well. One commenter at datalodge.com and discussing a book astutely noted. That book came out in 1992, but in 2001, Twitter wanted to remind people about it. Now, okay, let's get back to who the hell is Classically Abby and why this blew up. Classically Abby is the sister of Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro is, as y'all know, that annoying, weird, antsy-voiced, nut, far-right conservative blogger, cultural commentator, whatever you want to call him, who has a history of making racist, sexist, problematic remarks and defending all kind of bullshit. Highly problematic. Well, he has a younger sister named Abby. And she goes by classically Abby because she's a classic woman. And she's always trying to, you know, astute to this idea that she wants to bring back conservative women. The comeback of conservative women, conservative values, of course, she's anti-abortion. Of course, she probably does not support gay marriage. Of course, she is loving to be a woman in the household, cooking. She's Jewish. She was talking about... I, I looked at her um, YouTube um, channel, and she was talking about making Hanukkah treats and desserts. And it's so interesting because a lot of my Jewish friends that I know um, told me that Abby is trash. They do not like her. And that she makes horrible latkes. And that her latke donut recipe for Hanukkah is garbage and that no one should be trying to use it. I went on YouTube, okay, and tried to see her make these donuts. Y'all, it is a struggle. It was a struggle making, seeing her make latkes. It was a struggle making, seeing her make donuts. I was disappointed in Abby. But again, I'm disappointed in Abby for just her entire political existence. But it's highly problematic. She was making Hanukkah treats 
for, for the days of Hanukkah and it was a total nightmare. Now, I'm not a cook. I'm not a Jewish cook. I don't, I've never made Hanukkah delights, but I did run this by some of my friends who I said, hey, positive aside, what's up with these lockers and donuts? It was quite interesting. But I just want to clarify that in the attempt of her trying to slut shape, shame Madonna, she ended up putting the attention on Nancy. But let me be very clear because I am a feminist. It's not that Nancy can't be the throat coat. It's not that Nancy should have any shame of what she was doing allegedly in that MGM, you know, lot back in the day that made her so popular and get into 11 films in Hollywood. Okay. It's not so much that she was getting her boogie on. To me, the comparison between Madonna and Nancy Reagan is the difference between a woman who was aligned with supporting people who was living with AIDS and HIV, who showed advocacy in the 80s when Nancy Reagan kept that motherfucking mouth shut and kept that throat shut, okay, when it came to advocating and speaking up for what was right, when her husband let millions of innocent people die to a disease that he could have said more of and done more of, okay? When Nancy Reagan was saying, that throat was saying yes to dick, it was saying no to drugs, which led to a campaign to create mass incarceration and further criminalize black and brown communities to drugs. So all the times that she should have been opening that throat, opening that mouth, she didn't. And the thing that she decided to open her mouth to was her prerogative. She had every right to, okay? But it's not so much about what she was opening her mouth to for me. It's what she was keeping her mouth closed on. And that's why Madonna is over Nancy Reagan. So, if you want to talk about things being trashy, Nancy Reagan was very trashy and how she stayed silent to the atrocities of innocent people who was living with HIV and AIDS in this country. That's why she's fucked up. She's fucked up because she did not stay silent on the violence, but she perpetuated it when she allowed for a Just Say No campaign to take place that she knew was going to target black and brown communities and create the type of three strikes and crazy, you know, rules and shit that came from Nixon and her husband took all the way down. Okay, this war on crime, they continue to perpetuate that. Nancy is no saint. Okay, no saint. That's what I have to say about that. On to more fuck shit. So Kanye West and Drake, okay? I just want to say this. They can fuck off. This this decision for them to be homies and bros, which let me just say for the record, this continues my ongoing theory about hip hop and the, the 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 weirdness of it all, the contradictions of it all. But like these guys were allegedly beefing. And all of a sudden, you know, Larry Hoover, which is this old gangster who's currently incarcerated, there's conversations that we should free Larry Hoover, you know, all this criminal justice reform stuff, right? So Kanye has decided to get himself involved in this, which I was side-eyeing. But anyway, he wanted to get involved in this. He, he likes to play like he's this activist now because, you know, his ex-wife, Kim Kardashian, has tried to be the woke one of the group, trying to repair that fucked up image she has, right? All that cultural appropriation, right? But... Anywho, Kanye is invested in criminal justice reform or trying to act like he is with Larry Hoover. And he was with Prince and all the Jay Prince and all of this. And he was doing a video saying he wants Drake to meet him and they should get together and do a concert, a free concert and spread the word and all this crap. I don't know what the hell they were doing. So get charity or whatever. I mean, there's sweaters being sold, uh, ugly sweaters, by the way, and just merchandise. It's become a fucking spectacle, right? 
Concert happened in LA. People saw the two perform. They came super, super late. No surprise. But at the end of the day, I'm sitting here looking like, so to my, to my brothers, to, 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 to the black people I know, specifically a lot of black men, because I haven't seen that many black women uh, go hand for Kanye except Candace Owens at this point. But to all the black men I know that are still rocking with Kanye and to these, you know, alleged progressives, right, that are white, Y'all still fucking with Kanye. Y'all still buying Donda CDs. Y'all still supporting this man after all of this shit that's went down. Y'all are still supporting him. And and you're doing the whole... And I went off on Instagram. I know a lot of y'all saw that thread. I said what I said. And I mean it. Okay? Still rocking with his ass. And then with Drake. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. I can't Drake. Like, yeah, I know I don't like Drake. I don't like his music. I just don't like him. Drake needs to sit the fuck down for the rest of 2021 and 2022 and maybe just period. But like all of the things that's been going on with the both of them, like even his alignment with Kanye makes him even lose more cool points because the whole argument against Drake, y'all, was like, oh, I can't support Kanye because he's a Trump supporter. Minus the fact that Drake had those suspicious relationships with underage, you know, People, right? We know about those things. The DMs with with, with Billie Eilish and the conversations with Bobby Millie Brown or, um, you know, or, or Millie Bobby Brown or whatever. All of that stuff that was going on was suspicious, was weird. The R. Kelly sample on TSU that y'all tried to really try to downplay. Like, all of this shit was fucking weird, right? But okay. What is this use now? Like, these men both want to be canceled. But, again, I've told you all, the most powerful don't often get canceled. But we'll save that for the case of council culture coming January 2023. But with this, though, I said to myself, why are these two men? Why? Why? First of all, the excuse for Drake, I mean, the excuse for Kanye West, you know, this whole, his mental health, his mental health. Let me talk about, let's talk about mental health. First of all, Kanye has not really strongly come out and acknowledged any type of mental health issues or spelled it out to say he's got he's bipolar, whatever. There's always been this constant diagnosing of Kanye. Like there was schizophrenia rumors. There's all this. Stop diagnosing people. Now, you could say you're concerned about a person's state of well-being, but to just be putting out labels, like actually diagnosing people, saying this person's bipolar, this person is schizophrenic, like stop that. We, we have to just stop that. I, just, I am so, you know, in the pursuit of folks that are trying to get to a space of uh, therapy and help, one of the biggest issues that have pissed me off in this new wave of people trying to get help and get support is that now there's also the hyper-performativeness of that advancement. So in one sense, yes, there are people going to therapy and doing all of that type of work, which is necessary. But the issue is, and also it's necessary and it's encouraged. But what is also the problem, though, is that there are people in that space, within that space, that are not going to therapy, but the lingo is starting to now be embedded in the subculture. So like all of us are now starting to use the words of therapy and use these different types of terms, and we're starting to diagnose people as narcissistic. We're starting to say all these things. We're doing a lot of these, these, these this diagnostic on individuals in the therapy. Therapy sense, right? Like, that's one thing to call someone an asshole or dumbass, right? But it's nothing to say this person is schizophrenic. Like, that is an actual uh, clinical condition. Like, that is something that is has to be diagnosed by a professional. But what has happened is people are starting to now do that. 
And now people are playing the role of therapists and psychologists and, and all these practitioners. And it's like, hold up. This is not your fucking lane. And just like journalism, because people, everybody out here running around saying they're journalists, that's not. Now there's people out here trying to act like they could be a self-help guide and a therapist with no fucking degree or education whatsoever in it. But now they're getting certificates and what they call that shit, life coach. Is that the new excuse for people that don't want to get their ass to fucking school and get a real psychology degree? So now you want to call yourself a, a, a life coach embedding like therapy? Like career coaches are different. But putting yourself in this position to call yourself like a life coach with no counseling background or none of that type of real legitimate, you know, work. That's a problem. That's a problem. And there's been too much of these, these titles going around. Like a career coach, a professional coach, those type of things, consultants of those nature. Okay, that's one thing. But when we're talking about life coach, like someone that's supposed to help you with your therapy and things, I, I need people to clarify, articulate what that's supposed to mean if you do not have that licensed background or that experience in that type of medicine. Because what's happening now is that we're seeing so much self-care and wellness wannabe practitioners that's not like, like it's just like random shit. Oh, I'm going to put these memes up. I'm going to put memes up with cute colors and small words. I'm going to drink tea and look serious. I'm going to have plants in my house. I'm going to, you know, not have any, you know, blinds on my windows, let the sun come out. And, and that's going to be my way of performing this very calm, meta, zen vibe. Fuck all of that. Fuck all of that. So that's what's happened, right? There's a, there's a culture of people that's doing that. And so what they've done is, is that they've come to their sense, they've come to this false sense of, bullshit where they believe Kanye is not really anti-black Kanye's really not a misogynist Kanye's not really in bed with white supremacists Kanye's really not a Trump supporter that's mental health issues there's no way that the man I've loved and the music I've listened to for over 10 years over 15 years is the same man that could be this dirty. Maybe I just want to have cognitive dissonance and ignore the fact that Bill Cosby too was a man I loved that did fucked up things, but I can't think of him. No, no, no. I loved R. Kelly's I Believe I Could Fly. I remember that, but, 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 but I know he raped them girls, but, 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 but this ain't the same, right? I'm so blinded by the coat of celebrity. I'm a clout chaser. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Oh, I am such a cloud chaser. And Kanye, I can't put down the music, even though the music has gotten worse over the years. But I mean, he's a genius because any man who can, can do all that shit and still be able to pack, you know, uh, st you know uh, stadiums must be a genius. So he's a genius and we're missing something. Yeah, yeah, we got to be missing something because there's no way that he could just be full of shit. And, and I'm just following it. That's what I think is going on. And that y'all are putting yourself through a pathology of trying to rationalize the fact that two things can exist. That the man that you once knew that was super talented is also the same man that devolved into a fuckboy. They can both exist at the same time. You don't have to make it make sense, y'all. Or try to create bullshit, man. Or suspend yourself from disbelief. They could be true. Like, I can say this in the same sentence. R. Kelly 
is a man that can sing well. He was a great songwriter and a great singer. He is also a fucked up individual and a complete total rapist that deserves everything that's coming to him. Fuck him. Let him rot. Look at all the facts I just gave y'all. Why is that hard for you all to do? Why are y'all creating excuses for billionaires? Because Kanye West is a billionaire. Like, where is your fucking woke chip? Where is it? Did you throw it away? Did you eat it? Did you swallow it? Did you only use it to come at black women? Because the way that a lot of specific, particularly black cishet men come after black women who are in the same situation. I mean, we could talk about Chrisette Michelle all day, but let's talk about the recent current topics. Like, I don't know, um, Candace Owens. Like, you all hate Candace Owens. Oh, oh, Candace Owens is, you all refer to her as a bitch. You all call her all kind of names. You all are getting misogynistic. Misogynoir comes out. Oh, y'all get crazy about Candace. There's no justice for Candace. And listen, I am not defending Candace Owens. I am just stating the energy y'all have for Candace. But what's funny is, is that none of that energy is for Kanye. Granted that Kanye is older than Candace Owens. Uh, granted that y'all had it for Stacey Dash. And Stacey Dash has tried to repent since then. But like Omarosa, right? Like all of these people. Oh, fuck Omarosa. Even though Omarosa was getting a check. Fuck Candace. Even though her career is blooming. Fuck Stacey Dash who got some attention after many people in Hollywood stopped giving it to her. Like fuck all of them, right? Fuck Chris at Michelle. Oh, she's a problem. Oh, she betrayed the community. But somehow Kanye can wear a red hat, a red mega hat and take his ass over to the White House do all the crazy things, say all of the fucked up things, you know, disrespect Harriet Tubman, do all of this shit, say slavery was a choice, say all of this shit, and y'all still are out here giving this man all of the praise, all the favor, all of the opportunity, all of the attention, he gets a pass. It's a massage noir for me. Y'all hate black women, and you hate black women, or you just love trash men, which one, or both. Right? Or you just love to give chances to toxic black men. It's just interesting, the double standards. But someone asked me earlier, so why did they do the concert? Why do you think they did the concert, Ernest? Hmm. Earnestly speaking, I think they did the concert because both of them need a distraction. You know, the reason why we haven't heard much from Drake as much in recent memory, um, except with the stunt that, of course, he withheld or took out his nominations for the Grammys, is because he's been dealing with the Astral shit. You know, Drake needs a splash, and he's been trying to build upon ways to, to get himself back out there in the mainstream because he's been getting all these lawsuits along with Travis Scott pertaining to what happened to Astral. So in my mind, I think this is Drake's way of trying to like really dimmer down some of that attention because Travis Scott just did a fucked up interview with Charlamagne the God earlier this week. And my goodness, that was a horrible interview. I don't know why people keep talking to Charlamagne the God. And my thing with Travis Scott was he said nothing new and it just was pathetic. He looked spaced out. The, the setting was trash. Charlamagne the God is not a journalist. Those interview, reading those interview questions off a piece of paper, dude, what the fuck? Anyway, it's just, it was a nightmare. So with Travis Scott not doing a good job to help make this any better, Drake is trying to do some damage control, I feel like. And maybe that's why he did this concert with, with Kanye. Plus, I mean, at the end of the day, money, there's money to be made. Second, now on to Kanye. 
Kanye has basically um, been in another piece of shit. Like, while trying to put on this strong social justice front, a new story has come out and reported by major credible news outlets that the 62-year-old Georgia election worker has now said that Kanye's publicist came to her house and harassed her um, around at false election fraud accusations that was being made by Donald Trump. So basically, the, what's being alleged is that Kanye West used his own personal publicist and staff and team to harass a 62-year-old black woman, okay, who was basically trying to do her job as a poll worker. He's out here harassing poll workers, probably election workers, and support, trying to support Trump. And they literally went to this woman's house, according to this woman said that the publicist went to her house, asked to come in, told her, called her, came to her house or whatever, telling her that something bad could happen, something could happen to her, she needs to just admit you know, admit wrongdoing or admit and try to get her to lie and say that she did election fraud in the name of trying to give Trump, get Trump back into election, get reelected. This is disgusting. And so that just came out in the midst of this whole concert. So to me, and using my communication strategic hat, it does not surprise me that all of these things happened at once. Just saying. If it looks like a duck and walks like a duck, it's a duck. Kanye and Dre should just fuck off. Okay. And that's all I got to say about them. As I'm wrapping up, I just want to say, I'm going to talk about movies this, this month that I've been following into, but I just want to say, TV has gotten back up. Um, I am into this Abbott Elementary, which features uh, an incredible woman, Miss Bronson, who is in a Philadelphia comedian. You know, the woman who says, uh, Kenyatta uh, Bronson, who says, Oh, on Vine, she went viral for saying, you got a large, oh, we bought a large, she got a large, she's a great, funny comedian. Um, she has this really great show out. She is in called Abbott Elementary with Shelly Ralph, who is also on the show. And it's about Philadelphia public schools. And she's a teacher in Philadelphia. And the theme is beautiful. And it's a funny show. I just saw the uh, the first pilot. And it's it looks like it's going to be a great show. And I hope it gets Emmy nominations and it do well. But I'm super excited about it. Secession finale is, is, is coming up, you know, very soon. I am a groupie. Y'all know I love Secession. This finale is episode nine. I thought it was going to be 10 episodes this season. But it's only going to be nine. This finale coming up, y'all. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm clutching my pearls. I'm super excited. I'm just ready for... The seat. I mean, I really love that I followed Secession. I caught up with it and got in with the groove. I'm so into this. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk about Jeremy Strong and his interviews and everything. Listen, every actor have their own method. Listen, he's working by himself. He ain't out here bothering nobody, unlike Jared Leto, allegedly. But I do support, um, you know, I mean, Jared, you know, Jeremy Strong going to get the next. I think he's going to win an Emmy. I think he's going to win another one because it's time. Because that performance was fire. Just saying. Um, Love and Hip Hop Couples Retreat is coming back for a second season. That kicks off this week. Y'all know I love Love and Hip Hop. Um, I'm really concerned. I guess Love and Hip Hop New York, the original one that kicked off the franchise, is not coming back. And I guess Love and Hip Hop Hollywood isn't either. Because only new seasons of Love and Hip Hop um, Atlanta and Miami came back. 
but I have not heard anything about New York yet. So I'm wondering. And also I have some suspicions because I feel like I've noticed that they've taken people from other, from Hollywood and from New York and they have put them into Miami and um, Atlanta. So Safari was in Atlanta, which initially came from Hollywood. Ray J came through on, um, Ray J is all over the place, but Ray J is in Miami now, um, even though he came from Hollywood. Yandy is now in Atlanta when she came from New York. So it's interesting that they they, they move the people around. So I guess they're, they're really going to take, they're not continuing that. And they just won't be honest about that, which is kind of interesting. And this this show, Harlem. I'm, I'm going to be quiet about Harlem. I'm going to let y'all watch Harlem. I hear y'all been watching Harlem. Y'all like it. Good. There's some good things about it, I suppose. I mean, there's some interesting things. What I will say is that that whole conversation about the barbershop and homophobia that happens or, the, or in this one, overt sexism and things, that shit is real. Anybody who's going to a barbershop needs to be honest. Any black man goes to a barbershop that has been grown knows that there has been racy talk and sometimes inappropriate talk. Not all barbershops do it the same. Not all barbershops do it with the same level of veracity, but like y'all not about to tell that lie. That that you could go to some barbershop. And I feel and let me be clear. I feel like barbershops with a younger with a more younger barbershop vibe typically is. My barber is in his early 50s. He's been cutting my hair since his early 40s. He's been my barber for 11 years, okay? One of the most consistent men in my life outside of my friend circle, my husband. Um, my The other barber there is also in his like 40s. I, there's All the barbers in, in my shop are grown, grown men. But I have before them, remember when I was younger, going to barbershops and the guys were like, you know, out of jail, in and out, whatever, in their 20s, like some of these other barbershops in Philly. Y'all know what I'm talking about. There is those conversations that are being had and they get a little racy and I felt like the show was being accurate. And I thought the show was accurate in the particular age group of what type of barbers and how their vibe is. That shit is real. So I'm not going to deny that. Um, let me just say this real quick. I don't want to judge. And just like that. Um, the Sex and the, the City show yet. I will say it's promising. I will say as someone who owns a Peloton, which, you know, I talked about this before. Um, you know what? Those comments, that, that scene... You know, and I want to be a scene spoiler, but that scene, y'all, like it had Peloton dropping down $5 per stock. I mean, they were impacted by that. And I just want to say that clearly it's not true, but I'm just going to say to them, y'all came in. This show came in with a splash. They said, y'all want to see a season premiere? We're going to show you a series premiere. Like they really came out the gutter with it. Samantha is still out here being petty. Well, Kim Cattrall. Kim Cattrall is still out here being petty. I just wish this situation would just move on. Like, okay, Kim, if you're moving on, your other show you just got in got canceled. That didn't even last, even though I am rooting for her. I do like Kim Cattrall. But, I mean, all this just, like, too much, too much. Like, they're too old and too rich to be doing this. But, nonetheless. And then wrapping up, um, because this was a very long podcast. But, I mean, I, I you all keep listening. And I'm going to keep rocking with y'all. Um... Congrats to Meg Thee Stallion graduating from, you know, Texas Southern University. Um, she is incredible. I am so happy for her. Um, you know, she went to HBCU, um, TSU, and she's gorgeous. And she's Meg the graduate now. Um, she getting her degree, even as a female rapper who just won a Grammy, you know, Grammys this year. 
Um, pretty fucking awesome. I mean, she's won three Grammys. She has three Grammys, and she now has a BA. So, I mean, like, how, how can we? Yeah. And, and I'm just happy because, look, I graduated this year, too. I got my master's this year. Like, everyone's graduating. Go back to school if you want to go back to school. You know, uh, that's my take. Go back to school if you want to go back to school. Do it. Do it for various reasons, you know. Um, go out there and learn. Do your thing. Yeah. So. You know. Just saying. So. So much, um, you know, I, I, um, <laughs> I'll say this in wrapping up. I'm just going to keep it 100. And I'm not talking about one particular group over another because I'm just saying. I mean, this show can't end with a little bit of shame. But for people who are having holiday parties, and I mean this respectfully. If you tell people to come to a, an event in a mixer and you're having a holiday party in this pandemic and you don't have any actual food, like food, food, don't have that party. Don't have it. Because during a pandemic, people are not just about to be coming out unless you got a drink for them. You got food for them. You got something serious. The whole, oh, you know, come out. And then I, and I get there and I see cookies and I see, you know, drinks and I see pretzel bites. And then a lot of time it's not even a real liquor. It's like, you know, white wine and shit. Like, don't do it. Don't be that person. Holiday parties in 2021 and 2022 and forward needs to have real food or you need to just get or make that shit virtual. That's all I got to say. Make sure you're feeding people at your holiday parties. I know I am. I got a big holiday party I'm throwing with my organization. More details about it next week. Super excited about it. All my folks are coming through. It's going to be lit. But until then, y'all, happy holidays. Be well. And always be best. Earnestly Speaking is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. To stay up to date with the latest on the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mr. Ernest Owens. Use the hashtag Earnestly Speaking to tell me what you thought about this episode and check out my website at ErnestOwens.com.